Bienvenidos and welcome to episode 23 of the Jacobin Sports Show. I am Matthew Miranda, joined as always by the bon vivant Jonah Birch. I am Jonah. I sent you a gift in the mail, and I'm wondering if you have any idea. I'm not going to open it yet. Okay. I want to keep the, the listeners, you know, glued as long as we can. Do you have any idea what this gift may be? Did you? No. Peek? So Are I. You the kind of person who holds it under a light. So you I can was. Yeah. Try to get a. Per your instructions, I did not open it yet, but I was shaking it, and um, you know, my my girlfriend and I were trying to figure out what it was. It is a mystery gift. I hope it's not. You haven't sent me like anthrax or something, because that would really put a damper on this pod, you know. I, you know, and I don't think that's what it is, but you never know these days, you know, the mail. So, should I get it? I'm gonna get it real quick. I think our ratings would explode if I sent you anthrax, but it is not. It is actually not. It is actually not that. So you don't need to worry about it. Um, Natalie, that would be uh, if you were a guest on the episode, you know, where that happened. That would be. That would be quite an experience, yeah. huh? Claim to fame. It would be. I mean, I feel like all of our profiles would explode. <laughs> the podcast anthrax fiasco of 2021. You know, quite an experience. People probably couldn't get enough. It mean a lot of different things. So, um, I'm going to yeah, Hold this. it there. Good. Thank you. Hold it Good. there. Um, yep. Very excited. So in today's episode, we will reveal Jonah's mystery gift, which I was very thoughtful about and tried to consider the moment and his emotional state. And pick something that would really be like helpful and affirming. So Jonah, I hope you will accept it in the sincere and non-ironic spirit in which I purchased it for you. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> um, That's quite a, a preface. <laughs> I preface a lot with Jonah. Um, well, okay, let's get. So we're going to talk. Um, you're hearing our our guest voice, but you're not yet aware of who the guest is. So let me um, quickly introduce you to who she is, and then. I will suggest to you what we're going to talk about, and we'll get into it. Today's guest, um, you can find her sports writing at um, Fanbyte and the New York Times and SB Nation. She has also written about jazz and music for the Times, Rolling Stone, Billboard Magazine, Jazz Times, and Pitchfork. Um, she's a great follow on Twitter if you are into sports, if you are into society, or if you are into music. Um, been very excited and looking to have her on for a while. I've been a fan of her writing um, since a few years ago when I discovered her at SB Nation. Welcome to the pod, Natalie Weiner. Natalie, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, very thrilled to have you on. Um, I want to talk with Natalie today. Uh, we would like to talk with Natalie about a couple issues that are going on in the news and a few that have come up um, in some of her recent pieces Um but Jonah, I will let you open because I know you had a question about something that is very much in the news at the moment. Well, actually, I really wanted to ask Natalie about her devastating takedown of the film Wildcats that she, <laughs> she wrote last year. I was going through her back writings and wow, what a what a just absolute crushing review Look, you I gave. Mean, <laughs> I don't know. It's like. I'm so behind the premise, you know, like, obviously, like, Goldie Hawn coaching a football team is extremely, like, up my personal alley, just as a person who loves, like, football and women in football and whatever, um, but it just really has not aged well, you know, yeah. I would, I would love for it have, I was rooting for it, you know, but 
when I, I kind of was, I watched it as a part of this little project I did to do like a women in football film week, you know, which mm-hmm. feel, it seems like it's too specific to work, but it really wasn't. I had, <laughs> I had a full like slate of things that I did. Um, right. But yeah, it's like Wildcats could have been awesome, but it just hasn't stayed cool, you know? For, for a movie I haven't seen in two decades, I was reliving it through your review and going, wow, this really, this does not sound like it's working, you know? Yeah, uh, no, unfortunately. Even though uh, early early appearances by Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson, as you mentioned. Right. No, totally an all-star cast, which, you know, makes it just more disappointing that it can't be, like, a cult favorite. I will put in a word, since we're talking about it, though, for Oklahoma City Dolls, which I would argue is, like, one of the best sports films of all time. <laughs> but it's, like, this weird TV movie that I also sort of discovered and wrote about as a part of this little project. It is roughly contemporary, I think, with Wildcats. I mean, it was made in the early 80s, but it's, like, a TV yeah. movie. Um, it's just phenomenal. I mean, it's, like, insane in a TV movie way, but it's also, like... What happens if we, um, what would happen if we took the actual real story of the women's semi-pro team called the Oklahoma City Dolls, fictionized it through a lens of labor organizing and equal rights? So it's basically like everything I could want in a movie. Also, and include Waylon Jennings as a guest star. I'm like... Okay, wow. yes, I, I'm sold. Um, I actually recently spoke with the woman who wrote the script. Like, I had reached out to her when I was writing about it, but I just heard back from her, like, I don't know, uh, maybe three months ago. And I was like, mm-hmm. well, I definitely already published a story, like, a year ago, but I would be down <laughs> to just talk because right. I want to know how you came to, like, do this project and make it so, like, radical, even okay. though it aired on, like, ABC at the time. I am just looking this up right now. What? Mm-hmm. This kind of an all-star cast. You got Susan Blakely, Eddie Albert. You know, there's yeah. just a there's a lot going on here. I've I've never heard of this movie, but I mean, uh, most people hasn't haven't. But you can watch it for free on YouTube. But yeah, I interviewed Susan Blakely for the story I did. She is extremely awesome and yeah. just a super chill hang. I actually tried to, like, hang out with her. She didn't want to. I mean, <laughs> it was, like, in the middle of the pandemic. And I was, like, in Southern California. and I, cause we That's just, a crucial detail to include in that story. Because first it just sounds like a reporter who doesn't know the boundaries. No, no. I mean, it was just, like, I would not do that with, like, you know, 90% of the people I interviewed. But we had had such a nice time talking. And she was, like, mm-hmm. so appreciative of the story and all this stuff. And I was, like, hey, I know this is random, but, like, I'm in Southern California. And, like, if you wanted to, like, get coffee or something, that would be awesome. I'd love to, like, hear more about your career. And she was like, oh, next time, you know, like, she got it later, like, after I left. And, you know, we're, I I would like to think in my head we're friends. We're not really friends. But (laughs) I feel like the potential, at least, is there. Like, I planted the seed, you know. Yeah, where where would quarterback princess rank among all of these oh, films? It's also great. Quarterback <laughs> princess has also like aged really well, and there you have the young Helen Hunt. So you know, really, the women's Same. football world is like That's where everyone gets started. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know where, what happened. You know what where things fell off, but in the early eighties, ladies were. I'm were sure it was football. Reagan. I'm sure it had something to do with Ronald Reagan <laughs> Just tearing through that infrastructure. Um, <laughs> Okay, 
Okay. Jonah, do you want to ask? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So on a more serious uh, note, or not more serious, but more immediate. So obviously, you know, the big story in women's professional basketball right now is the snubbing of Neko Ogumuke from mm-hmm. the U.S. Olympic team uh, has caused quite a bit of controversy. I- I'm wondering uh, if, you have, if you have thoughts, if uh, what the hell is going on here, former MVP, star of the L.A. Sparks. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like, it's hard to say conclusively because, you know, none of the decision makers are really talking about it. I think the stated reason was that she's injured, which she is. But I guess her timetable is that she's looking to be back on the court again by the Olympics. So, um, and the other thing is that Diana Taurasi, who is on the roster, is also injured. And Diana Taurasi is considerably older than NECA. So, you know, you just sort of put two and two together and like her ability to recover from an injury is, you know, hindered by the fact that she's, she's older, but yeah, she's still going to the Olympics. I think like leaving NECA off is a perplexing choice, both from a basketball standpoint and from a political standpoint. Like everyone's like, oh, it's all about politics. Like, you know, USA basketball, they don't know what they're doing, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, NECA is the head of the WNBPA, you know, and NECA is like the star of a team and NECA's sister has her own ESPN talk show. So like if politics were a concern, like leaving NECA off seems pretty, you know, obviously transparently like a bad choice from a political standpoint. So I don't really know and I don't understand it. I think having both Sue and Diana on the team again, you know, for the five millionth time is I think what like most people are like reacting to, like the reason that it's a story, you know, in a lot of ways is it's like, okay, both of these players are very, you know, they're close to retirement. We know, you know, just by, because you can only play professional basketball for so long. Um, And like, are they both really essential to like give this team their best odds of winning, et cetera. And like, I don't know. I mean, it's like they can come up with reasons obviously to include them. They're both two of the greatest women's basketball players of all time, two of the greatest basketball players of all time. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's messed up. I think if we zoom out a little bit, like the positive is that there is even a controversy over it all, you know, like it's just mm-hmm, sort of mm-hmm. good to have people talking about women's basketball in a way that's like concerned, not with whether or not people are watching women's basketball, you know, like to have yeah, a yeah. main point of discourse. That's like not, Oh man, why don't more people watch the WNBA? Which I feel like mm-hmm. is always a relevant conversation and yet it gets very tiring and it's like it's nice to talk about something that's not sexism you know Mm -hmm. can i um can so is there any as you referenced obviously you know the players association she's uh she plays a major role very prominent figure is there Mm -hmm. any um speculation that internal labor politics had anything to do with this or is that not oh man is that not... I kind of doubt it. Yeah. Because I think the new CBA was, like, so widely perceived as, like, a win for everyone. Right. You know, like, I think the WNBA is, like, happy with the CBA. Right. You know? And, like, 
they got to tout it as like, hey, we're giving, we're paying players more and whatever. So I would be pretty skeptical if it were like retaliatory. That would be wild though. I mean, mm. I think the, um, I can't remember all the names who are on the committee. It's like, it's not just Don Staley, who's the head coach of the, um, of mm. Team USA, who makes yeah. the call. It's like, there's a whole group of people and some of them are Other w- coaches. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them are WNBA coaches. I mean, I know Kurt Miller is one. He was asked about it and he was like, I'm not speaking for the committee or something, which is like, right. all right, that's a cop out. Um, but <laughs> Pretty much. it's like, I think the committee has like five people on it. So it's like, well, somebody's got to, you know, yeah. explain what went <laughs> yeah. on here, you know. But yeah, I think my my micro analysis is like, yeah, it's really fucked up. Um, my macro analysis is like, I'm glad that this is the kind of beef that we're having you know. Mm-hmm. Speaking of other questionable political decisions um, or just actions, you wrote a piece recently um, having to do with corporate sponsorship of women's sports. And I'm interested in two parts of this in particular. Um, one is is a, a point you made that I think applies to all sports fans in general, but it's obviously um, very particular to women's sports that are now growing and are at this interesting point. Um, some of them in their history where the big companies are taking note of them and there's benefits that come with that, but there's also some darker elements. And you wrote um, a quote that really kind of caught my heart in one of your pieces. You wrote, women's sports is ripe for greater monetization. They certainly need money and it has to come from somewhere and big companies have more to spend than small ones. And obviously this has been a fixture of men's sports forever. The space between accepting it and rooting for it, I think, is where I struggle. Can you elaborate a little bit? Because you're not only someone who, I mean, obviously you you write about sports, but that probably comes out of also a a place in your life as a sports fan. And Mm -hmm. I know that Jonah and I have discussed, like, you know, like I basically root for, you know, three main teams and they all have very ethically dark ownership situations. Um, And I have to, there's a point where I have, if I don't disassociate from that, I don't know where to go, um, yeah. and I don't know what to do with that. And I'm curious, um, as a human versus a fan, you know, it's hard to be conscious and conscious like at the same time. And I'm just curious, um, do you feel like this is like, you know, how sometimes when a band is is not too well known, but they're getting more well known? <laughs> right. There's a there's a risk period where like okay, they might get swallowed up, and hopefully they don't. And if they don't, they're good on the other side. Do you think that that women's sports in any way now? Today, either because, and we'll talk about this a bit more later, but you mentioned in another piece the idea that men's sports can tend towards um, kind of creating um, a mainstream or at least protecting Mm -hmm. it. And women's sports are fundamentally transgressive in different ways, particularly in terms of bodies and things. So I'm curious if you think that that inherent transgressive element to women's sports might help it in any way not have the same risks of being swallowed up and co-opted but but also the machine is so big like yeah. do you have any feelings you know one way or the other about that i mean that's like the big question right is it's like will women's sports selling out make them like not as appealing as a kind of like i don't know it's like for the past however many years you've kind of gotten to feel like radical for liking women's sports you know what i mean like that in and of itself got to feel like, well, like, I'm progressive. I watch women's sports, okay? Like, I I know what's what. Um, and, like, the more these 
really big scale corporate sponsors. Not that this is the first time that women's sports have had major corporate sponsors, but in this current wave of like bigger companies signing on, it is just like, I don't really get to feel like, wow, rah, rah, WNBA, like them and Google, you know, and Deloitte. (laughs) It's like, yeah, oh man, this is so awesome. I love these companies, you know? Um, It doesn't really get to feel as like, as just like a un, um, I don't know, a good with no caveats, you know, or, or with no asterisks, which I think women's sports got to feel that way and fans got to feel that way for a pretty long time. Um, but yeah, do I think that the transgressiveness will temper that? I hope that it does. I mean, I think there are ways in which like, as much as it bothers me that the WNBA and the NWSL like are starting to lean on like identity and activism as like a marketing tool, you know, as much as those things kind of make me feel bad, I guess it's sort of better than some of the alternatives, you know, like I think that insisting on a not white queer identity like as a sports league and I think I don't I wouldn't say that either the NWSL or the NWA or WNBA whoo I can't talk is like (laughs) exactly there yet you know but they're at least like leaning in that direction I do think that that is positive even if it makes me feel bad you know in some of Mm -hmm. the like specific ways that they're doing it I think it's will hopefully make them still like kind of a counterpoint to the men's leagues where as we're saying seeing you know every day like that kind of inclusivity is just still like so far away like frank discussions about racism sexism you know homophobia all that stuff is just not you know a thing i mean with carl nasib like coming out becoming the first Mm -hmm. openly gay nfl player like the fact that that's newsworthy you know and obviously it's the relationship that I think professional sports has had with gay women versus gay men is like, you know, it's a two very different cans of worms. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But, but yeah, I do, I think it's like, it just is going to take a lot of like personal compromising, which of course existing in a capitalist society just does period. But I think <laughs> that women's sports, I hope that they're able to kind of like, keep some of the things that have made them a home for people who don't feel like they fit in. You know, I hope that that stuff doesn't get lost because that's what I think is like one of the most valuable parts of their existence. Can I ask you, cause you, you know, so the WNBA now a quarter century in, right. You know, mm-hmm. it's, I just had a anniversary if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. It feels like the seminal moment where the league is primed for a takeoff or something. Maybe I'm wrong. And, you know, maybe no. I'm, um, and there's going to be that tension. It's going to get worse going forward. Right. I mean, it does, mm-hmm. the audience has grown, it's bigger, it's gotten more mainstream, uh, you know, as a, as a kind of whatever, you know, a uh, spectacle as a, an entertainment mm-hmm. object. Um, is that a discussion point, I guess, in the league or around, you know, around it or, I mean, how do you see I mean, that playing out? Yeah. I think it definitely, I mean, women's sports in general, WNBA just being like the longest running professional women's sports organization in America um, at the moment 
And like just overall women's sports, I think, are gaining a lot of momentum, which is really heartening to see. Um, and it's interesting to me how much of that momentum is in concert with broader societal um, conversations about like identity politics as you know like I think that I don't know it's like I am always number one like ragging on Bill Simmons person but it is wild (laughs) to see somebody as mainstream as Bill Simmons like up until 2012-2013 he was still using the WNBA as a punchline like very unapologetically for sure and this is someone who's extremely powerful in the sports world and really respected honestly by many people you know maybe not like my particular corner of twitter but like you know the world writ large like probably respects his sports opinions and it was that acceptable to just like shit on the WNBA um and so like the fact that that is no longer the case you know that if you do that now you will see consequences and people will say, no, you're wrong. Like that's a sea change. You know, that's really pretty dramatic, honestly. Um, And I don't think there's ever been a context in which women's sports have had this much respect, I guess. (laughs) Um, So, so yeah, I do think that they, in general, that kind of people ultimately deciding like no you can't just be sexist against women who play sports like are kind of reaching that point as a society I guess or at least within the United States like that's kind of created a world in which like these leagues can actually be successful because if the most powerful people in sports can just make your league a joke like you're never gonna be sick you're never gonna win you know like Mm -hmm. nobody's ever gonna take you seriously like I don't know Mm -hmm. I I want to write um I haven't yet but like talking to some of the columnists like of Simmons ilk and even who preceded him who really like wrote very explicitly sexist columns just through the 90s and aughts just about women's sports and be like these are the people who shaped the narrative, you know, and we're only now like escaping the narrative. And so that I think is maybe sort of like an undercredited part of this change of this point at which like, oh yeah, the WNBA has, this is its 25th season. Like now it can maybe grow, you know, maybe we can be optimistic about this. I mean, you know, it's so funny because I remember exactly what you're talking about for years and years and years. He would, you know, it was totally, he used it as a punchline, Simmons, who, you know, as a fellow Bostonian, I I think I have more time for him than probably the other people who are on this podcast, (laughs) except when he talks about politics, in which case I want to shoot myself in the head, and I just wish he would stop. But he, he does, it's indicative of some kind of like moderate liberal common sense or something. And that, right, you know, he's right. not like a raging reactionary. And so he's just kind of a shitty liberal. Uh, and I shouldn't, uh, uh, maybe Connor, we can take that out. And I, I instead we could say. Uh, Leave he, it in Connor. No, no, I, I don't want to. I'm trying not to insult any section of our audience. He's, he's, he's a very mainstream kind of centrist liberal. Uh, and he, The way he's talked about it has totally changed. It's not that he does lots of shows about the WNBA or, you know, but he he does treat it as a 
like seriously, more seriously, I guess. I, that is so indicative of something, right? I mean, he's such a bellwether uh, uh, of something yeah. broader that's happened. I mean, I, yeah, I, he's just like one case study, right? But he, I do remember he said like, my daughter made me less sexist, you know, which is like so annoying. <laughs> Girl and dad. exactly what like 90% of all men say, you know, like, oh, well, I didn't even like realize that sexism was bad. And then I had a daughter like, whoa, that's <laughs> wild. It was something about like how his daughter's soccer team like couldn't get access to a field because like the boys soccer team had it first. He was like, whoa, was radicalized by that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, but anyway, so all that is to say Bill Simmons probably still pretty sexist. Um, <laughs> I don't know him, but like, at least it's not acceptable, you know, for him to just like make those jokes. At least he knows that much, you know, mm -hmm. that it, it would not be okay. Um, so yeah, I think that's a big change. And I just think it's just one small example of how the conversations as a whole around women's sports have changed to some degree, even if sometimes it feels like we're on this treadmill of like the same stupid, like, Oh, can a woman mean a beat a man at sports? Like how much do they get paid? Like, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's like a lot of the same conversations yeah, yeah. that we have to have over and over. But I do feel like that is a mark of something. I think I hope I like our discussion of the fact that I think on an individual level, like Natalie is saying, like if you not only was were NBA jokes for a long time accepted as kind of um, not even code, just like explicit, like we're making fun of, of people for a lack of, of true mm -hmm. athletic ability, but it was, it was clearly coded language also for, um, for homophobic language um, yeah. for referencing yeah. people. So I want to get us, off of our happy consensus that things are better as far as individuals go. And I'm going to yeah. drag us back to Natalie's sad treadmill to bring up a <laughs> couple of institutional examples. Because I, I think the, the institutional things, at least in our society, at least in sports, tend to follow well after individual mm -hmm. turnarounds have come. And so not to, not to, not to dwell on, it, on the negative, but there were two things that, that came up in your, in your articles um, that were very interesting. One, um, again, from your piece on corporate sponsorship, you made a mention of Google and how Google has now received this, um, a title. They are officially a, quote, WNBA changemaker. And this sounds really <laughs> exciting. Like, as you're saying, oh, my God, Google. Like, who has more power to change things than Google? But as Natalie points out in her piece, um, she says, quote, there are plenty of ways that Google could structurally make the WNBA and other women's sports thousands of times more accessible with minimal effort, making teams appear at the top of search results or first on their YouTube TV property, or just not having a search for UConn basketball always yield results for UConn's men's basketball. But they're not. They're slapping their name on a bunch of pre-existing properties, and I didn't know this. And someone perversely sponsoring a new women's-only highlight segment on SportsCenter. So... I don't know if this analogy works or not because I was never into this fashion-wise anyway, but I remember mm -hmm. studying in college, like, and I remember living this in the 80s, the shoulder pad movement, where if you right. wanted to look powerful and respectable, the women would dress in a, in a yeah. manner that was more mannish. And, like, it was, and it seems to me like what Google is doing here is a very similar, like, hey, separate but equal, let's get mm -hmm. women their own highlights as if that somehow... I, I don't know, superior to, yeah. as you were saying, why not just have sports be sports? Um, yeah. 
so we have there an example of institutional still getting like an official sponsor of the league is more exempt it seems from sh- shitty or just um what's the better word for it like regressive anti everything that is the spirit of the mm-hmm. sport behavior than even an individual could get away with yeah i mean i think when we're talking about like how the ways in which people are marketing women's sports are like actively anti-woman you know it's usually like in a more subtle way you know than like bill simmons being like oh uh, mike d'antoni needs to go to the WNBA or whatever you know like it's like it's more it requires like on the superficial level it's like oh this is good money for women's sports women have a place you know like it's at first glance it's like Yay, like somebody celebrating women. But the problem that I see and kind of, you know, that makes me feel just mixed about all of it is just that a lot of the kind of corporate investment in women's sports is contingent on reiterating the difference of women. You know, like they can't just promote the sports as sports. It It's like... It requires either painting women as empowering or special or like beautiful or strong or whatever, you know, like Like somehow being like other. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like it's not just like, oh, wow, like Brianna Stewart's like super good at basketball. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. no, like she's an amazing symbol of activism and power and whatever, (laughs) you know, and it's like. Okay, I guess, but it's also that's a little bit patronizing, I think, at the end of the day, you know, to like it's like a special pat on the head, like ladies are playing basketball. Like, can you believe how wild and incredible that you know? It's like it kind of goes into this whole like counterproductive cycle, but so like the Google (laughs) Sports Center thing is like. Yeah, like, I mean, that's absolutely the stupidest thing ever. Like, women do not need their own highlight thing. Just include them in regular sports center. Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't help anyone. It, all it says is there's a different bar for women to be, like, women's sports being appealing is on their own scale. It's not just, like, they can be fun to watch in the larger world of sports, you know? And yeah. that's sort of, like, I wrote about it, kind of a different manifestation of this same thing of, like, the ways that investing corporations investing in the WNBA, which is painted as a progressive thing, actually like drives home these regressive ideas. Um, I wrote about it a little bit in this like Instagram thing, like mm-hmm. just I think with um, now this is even more re- relevant because the name, image, and licensing stuff that just passed with um, yeah. in the Supreme Court, like they're saying that the NCAA has been having this illegal monopoly or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, And now there have been these stories like, well, women college athletes are actually poised to make a lot of money because they have a lot of Instagram followers, you know, like, so it's, it's like, okay, I mean, that's good, I guess. But then it's like this woman who is playing for the fever, whose name I can never pronounce. So I'm actually just not going to say it because I don't even want to like go there. But if you want to read the story, you can see it. But, um, she is extremely good. She was picked number four overall in the WNBA draft. Oh, which yeah, is a yeah. massive leap. Like, she was projected in the third round. She oh, was wow. taken number four. So that's already kind of like 
Okay, sure. Mm -hmm. um, she is massively popular on Instagram. She's extremely beautiful. She posts a lot of photos that are like, you know, the full thing, full makeup, mm -hmm. full hair, full whatever, which of course is her prerogative. You know, who am I to say like, no, go flourish, make your money, like sell the slim tea. I really don't care. <laughs> but the issue is that she received like one of the biggest contracts that like Adidas ever given a woman yeah. athlete, you know, and it's sort of like, is this, this sick? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and like, this is not me saying like she doesn't deserve it. I don't, yeah, 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 it's, yeah. it's whatever. It's just that there are so many WNBA players who are fantastic, you know, who have been in the league for a million years, who are on their way to the hall of fame who don't receive that kind of attention or those kinds mm -hmm. of sponsorships and corporations. It's very easy for them to look at social media and be like, well, this is going to be money in the bank. Like I already see that this girl has like a bajillion followers, Yeah. but in the process of doing that, we're just driving home all of the things that I think women's sports like have the potential to disrupt like the idea that women are only as valuable as they are beautiful, as they are appealing to straight men, mm -hmm. you know, like, and so it just feels so backwards, you know, this idea that we're just going to go like, well, and whatever athletes have the biggest following on Instagram are going to like become the richest. Because mm -hmm. it's just like, certainly there's a little bit of that kind of discrepancy on the men's side. Like not all the best men's players get the best sponsorships. Like this kind of unfairness is, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is a bit universal but it's like it's so specific and superficial in the world of women's sports because yeah. they're so much smaller you know it's just i don't know it makes me sad and i think we're going to be seeing it a lot more now just that now that the ncaa stuff has passed which is good again i, I think it's good that players can profit off their name image and likeness i just worry about what it means for the women athletes who don't conform to those kinds of norms and who have no interest in conforming to them, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think there's another danger, um, not only to what you're saying, which to me brings to mind when Anna Kornikova broke into um, women's mm -hmm. tennis and, but just thinking about that. Yeah. But also um, you spoke to a sociologist named Rachel Allison about marketing women's sports. And she made a very interesting um, she used a term ideology of interest that yeah. um, I was I found interesting and disappointing to realize how hardwired um, just prejudice against interest in women's sports is. And I think sometimes there can be a danger that, you know, I, I think for a lot of sports fans, we recognize today that like you cannot separate politics and sports as much as some networks may want to do it or as much as when it's certain particular messages we like to do it. But we know that like there's just so much intermingled you can't. Um, but I, so I was, I was interested, um, I think of, of there being a bias against women's sports that is inherently in my mind, it's somehow like purely capitalist that like, well, mm -hmm. once they, once they see like it's worth this much money, then they'll jump all over it. Because, but there are moments where it's, it's not just about that. It really is about ingrained misogyny. And, and I wasn't aware of this until I read Allison's quote. Um, but when she was talking about this ideology of interest, Allison said, um, this ideology of interest, it is deeply, it is really deeply ingrained in our minds, uh, but also within media and corporate organizations that there's just somehow less interest in women's sport. In the case of investment decisions, one of the things that I found 
with the kinds of corporations and media entities that tell women sports know is that oftentimes it's an assumption that there's just not a lot of interest. It's not based on rigorous market research. There is just a much lower risk tolerance for investments in women's sports than in men's without necessarily having a lot of data to support that. I'm shocked when I hear that. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> like why it would be all, but it, it's a little jarring to imagine that like, because I think of these entities as like just pure profit hoarding machines and like anything that will right. get them. But they're not, it's clearly not just about that because as, as Allison is highlighting here, there is just a hardwired built-in bias that like if a woman is doing it and it's athletics, it's not as interesting, which then yeah. makes this Kornikova and the player you're talking about on, I think the fever more nefarious that like she will probably have success at least as a sponsor. And then you're going to get this, juxtapos- this juxtapositioning of like, look, she's popular. She's successful. She's bringing right. in money. Don't you want that? You should be happy. But it mm-hmm. neglects like it neglects this transgressive element and it neglects the sport simply as like a competitive enterprise. I know as a Nick fan and someone who's covered the team for years, Frank Nilakina may be the most beautiful human being I have ever seen in my life. My fiance knows that like I would leave her in a second if he showed up <laughs> at my door tonight. However, that never that detail, other than occasionally as a joke, never mm-hmm. ever ever factors into anything right. about not only his playing career, but even his endorsements. He's not a great player. So everyone's first thought would be like, well, yeah, he's gorgeous, but he stinks. He doesn't have yeah. the merit to earn that. I get concerned <laughs> that like there's going to be this period of corporate like behavior we recognize because nobody in the media today, it's been so long since we've seen an Amer- a male sports league take off. Mm-hmm that we have all these assumptions about entrenchment and tradition and blah, 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 that I'm mm-hmm. worried about what happens when, when, when corporate America sees, oh, there really is this money here. There really mm-hmm. is this opportunity. Like, I can't imagine, like, how dark they might get with shit or, like, the things they might try yeah. to pull, you know? And it's, like, it's not that this is new. I mean, like, the initial phase of marketing for the WNBA did include a lot of, like, blue trip sponsors, you know, when it was founded in the late 90s. Um, and like there were ads on TV, games were on NBC, you know, there, there was that it's just, you know, I wrote a story about this for SB Nation. It's just the return didn't happen quick enough for all of these sponsors to stay on board, you know, after about three years, they were all kind of like, no, like this is not, it's not growing as fast as we want it to, as fast as we had planned for it to team owners, I think. It was enormously popular, like, its first season and even into its second season. But then things kind of, like, evened out. You know, the novelty wore off, whatever. Um, But it's, like, none of the people were in it for the long haul, you know? Um, And so during that time, like, all the players were marketed in a very superficial, you know, like, you know, Sue Bird was front and center. Rebecca Lobo was front and center. The kind of, like, colorism, racism, like... You know. I had Teresa Weatherspoon toward the back. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, like, totally. it's like, it's very, I don't know. And like the homophobia. I mean, I did an interview with Sue yeah. Wicks, who was the first player to come out. And that was not till the 2001, I think it was. Or, yeah. It, it So it took time, you know, even though there were all these stereotypes that women's basketball is for lesbians, you know, going, predating the WNBA, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but... But yeah, I think 
it's just hard to watch now, you know, thinking with the kind of wanting to think that we're past that kind of thing, you know, wanting to think that we are better at seeing people for who they are rather than just what they look like. But I don't know if that's true. And the bias towards white players is still so strong, you know, and I think you know, that kind of adds fuel to the neck of fire a little bit to just be like, why is this woman not on the team? You know? Mm -hmm. Um, But, I mean, my personal, like, take, not that it's semi, I'll say it's semi-problematic, maybe more than semi-problematic, but uh, Elizabeth Williams, who plays for the Dream, she's playing on the Nigerian national team at the Olympics, um, and the fact of the matter is, <laughs> there are enough Nigerian-American players in the WNBA right now that are really at the top of the game. I mean, you've got Arike Agumbawale, you've got Neka and Shanae. And, like, of course, these are American players. I completely understand that they want to play for Team USA. But if they decided, you know, plenty of players play for other national teams besides Team USA because they can't get on Team USA, you know, so they go and they play, they get French citizenship and they play for France or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so if all the Nigerian-American players decided they wanted to go play for Nigeria, like, that team would have a good shot at, like, giving <laughs> Team USA, like, a run for its money. So Same. I just, you know, this is this is my take. But um, just a sidebar because yeah sexism racism it's all it's still there and i wish we were further past it than we are but yeah i think it's just it's subtle enough that most people can kind of look past it you know what i mean yeah i would say by the way that as long as the wmba still is paying their employees poorly enough that a lot of them have to go around the world all year to to play Those players should have a right to play for any country that they want to around the world. I know a lot of them play in the Russian League um, yeah. and a lot of other places. So hopefully No, it they... definitely... It, I don't know, like, I can't think of exact names, but I know there are Americans who play for France. I mean, John Quill Jones, who's one of the better players in the league right now, is, like, representing Bosnia in Eurobasket right now. So it's, yes. like, it's clear... It's not unprecedented at all. Um, and no. so I... And in, in, in soccer, it happens all the time. Like, constantly, right. you know. Right. Yeah. I'm sure right. once Google figures out how to turn a dollar on it, they'll all be they'll all be playing somewhere. Sponsored right. by somebody else. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, Arike was kind of snubbed from the USA, Team USA as well. Um, so what if her and NECA just like team up and they're like, no, we're going to go play for Nigeria. Um, I mean, that would be awesome, I think. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. The best revenge is playing wanted... for Nigeria. Go ahead, Jonah. <laughs> no, no. I, so, you know, I wanted to ask you about Carl Nassib coming out and mm-hmm. also about the NCAA ruling. But actually, I... It's so from what I understand, you are you did you grow up in Seattle? Are you I a did. Seattle sports fan? Mm-hmm. Is that uh I, I you know, I'm interested in in uh the fact that Seattle does not have a NBA team, tragically, mm-hmm. wrongly, you know. Uh, I think we would all agree because they left for fucking Oklahoma City, which yeah. is just absurd. It's true. I, do you feel like the the um the storm have filled some of the vacuum there and it's I mean what a I mean they're the best team in the WNBA for 
yeah. whatever. No, they've been you know, good for a while. Now. I mean, they're poised to maybe like break the record of championships, I think. Um, but yeah, I wish I could say that they filled the void. I wish I could say that everybody in Seattle who loves basketball just like accepted the storm as their team. But unfortunately, I don't really think that that's the case. You know, there's a lot of Sonics nostalgia. <laughs> and I mean, I get it. Obviously, like the era of the Sonics was awesome. I lived through it. Um, but like, but yeah, I think there's definitely, there are a lot of people who are like, no, we need the NBA in Seattle. And it's like saying, no, you have like one of the winningest teams in WNBA history doesn't really appease them, unfortunately. <laughs> and do we feel like getting a pro hockey team, that's not that's not going to take the edge off because, you know, it's hockey. And yeah, I don't. Let's I mean, be honest, who gives a shit? No offense, hockey fans, you know, but. Right. I yeah. can't say that I have any like personal... Um, you know, I have no feeling about the Kraken, but I guess that the people Kraken. are into it. Kraken, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's funny because, like, right when I was in high school was when the Sounders were, like, getting really big. Yeah. You know, like, people were super, super excited about them. And at the time, I was just kind of like, I mean, I guess whatever. I was not, like, into sports as much at that point, but... So I guess Seattle has a history of, like, embracing new teams, new mm -hmm. leagues, new... I mean, the NHL isn't new, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I think they should have gone with the uh, Seattle Real World as the name of the team, because that was a great season of the Real World. I don't know if you guys remember that one, but that... I do. You know, it, it would have been a lot better than the, the Kraken. I mean, what the hell? You know, what yeah. are we doing here? It's really? very, it's goofy. But you know what? Seattle is like a ghost of its former self. So I can't, I can't be like too in my feelings about anything Seattle because at this point it's just like Bezos ruined it. So yeah, Bezos and Bill, they just kind of collaborated to just take anything good in Seattle and flush it down the toilet. You know, we're doing some some city-themed angst episodes coming up soon. Jonah has us <laughs> reading one for Boston. So if you'd like to come back and discuss everything that's gone wrong with Seattle, we would be very happy. The death happy. of Seattle. We'd yeah, be very that is, happy that to is, have you That's a Pulitzer. You know, Sponsored by they're, Amazon. They're... I mean, you should get, like, Charles Mudede or someone, you know, one of the stranger, like, old-timers to do that. Because I don't even live there anymore to, to talk yeah, about yeah. it. And I haven't been back now, I mean, since before the pandemic. So mm. I, I know what's going on, but I, I couldn't call myself a true expert as somebody who no longer lives there. Speaking of true experts, I am always um, struck on Twitter at the expansiveness of Natalie's interest in jazz. And so I want to know, first I have a curiosity, did you grow up playing jazz? Did you grow up playing any kind of a jazz instrument? How did you get into this world? I did. Um, I Well, I started actually playing electric bass because, you know, in classic cliche Seattle fashion, like I wanted to be in a rock band. Okay. Like, in middle school and I was um but I got to high school and I went to a kind of like I went to an all-girls catholic school so it's relatively small um despite being Jewish I know it's weird but <laughs> the director of the music department was like will you learn to play upright bass we don't have a bass player right now for jazz band or orchestra you know and I was just playing electric at that point and I was like, oh, I mean, I guess, sure, whatever. You know, <laughs> I was just like, I mean, that, like, they would lend me the bass, you know, so I'm like, well, no harm, no foul. I don't, it doesn't cost me anything. Um, 
And so I did, and it was really fun. And I just like got super into jazz band and orchestra and just hanging out in the music department. And yeah, that was totally mm -hmm. my thing. I was not into sports at all. Cool, cool. How did the 1959 project come about? Um, and what is the, was, is, will be the ambition with that? I mean, so my first like full-time journalism job was at Billboard and obviously not a ton of opportunities to write about jazz <laughs> at Billboard because the focus hey. is on uh, music that sells. <laughs> but I did, I mean, they basically gave me free reign, you know, as long as I got my stuff done, you know, like right. what I actually had to do, then I could sort of do whatever I wanted in my spare time, which was awesome. Um, but they... The editor-in-chief, like, saw kind of randomly a benefit concert with a bunch of jazz legends, and he was like, we really should get these guys in the magazine. You know, like, what's a framework with which we could, like, get a lot of the kind of aging jazz legends into Billboard? And so I was like, I mean, 1959, kind of conventionally known as, like, one of the greatest years in jazz history, um, just because it's, like, kind of blue year, it's, like, John Coltrane, Giant Steps, it's uh, fucking Charles Mingus, it's Dave Brubeck, you know, there's all of these people who are still part of the canon, doing their most canonical albums in a lot of cases. So I, like, pitched this framework, and as a part of the pitch, like, I suggested doing a timeline of like every single day of the year, like saying something that happened in jazz. And because as I started researching, I found so much stuff and I was like, wow, this is incredible. Because obviously like my favorite thing is just reading old newspapers and whatever, just digging in the weeds of that stuff. And pretty unsurprisingly, they were like, that's way too much work. We're not going to do that. But the idea sort of stayed with me. And I was like, how can I do this? You know, I tried pitching it a couple places to see if I could like get some money out of it. But then it was like, everyone was like, that's way too much work. So I was like, in 2019, which, you know, 60 years after, um, I was like, I'm just going to do it. Like every single day, I'll just do a little post, like what happened on this day in 1959 in jazz, like kind of with a pretty specific focus in New York, but a few mm. things that went outside of that. Um, and I was, you know, I started it and I was like, one, no one will care about this. Two, like, I don't think I'll be able to keep this going more than like three weeks, but you know, we'll see. Um, and I had already done some of the, you know, a reasonable amount of the research. Like I had like a long Google doc with every day and like some of the days had stuff in them already. Mm. But, um, yeah, people were way more into it than I expected, which was very cool to see. And I did manage to do it for the whole year. So there are 365 posts of stuff for every day um, of what happened in 1959. And yeah, it was, I mean, I learned a ton just doing the research for it. Mm -hmm. It was just, it was cool. I mean, I like, it's just mostly because I wish that I had been alive then, you know, like this is like my way of like yeah, trying yeah, yeah. to time travel because like I would have, I would give anything to like go to the village Vanguard in 1959 and like just see who's playing and like, whatever you know it's like it would have been insane yeah but yeah nice natalie weiner do you have anything coming out anytime soon that our audience should be looking out for uh not really i'm kind of trying to take a semi sabbatical except for my column that i have every week at fanbite which of course you should all read um 
But yeah, I'm just trying to like focus on bigger picture stuff and just also like chill because now I don't live in New York and I don't have to like worry every minute about paying my rent. So, <laughs> so yeah. That is true. Enjoy that. Um, Are you in Texas now? Is that what I, is that? I am. Yeah, I live in Dallas. Is it, so the rent is cheap and the, is the living easy or not that easy? It's pretty easy. I mean, yeah, I moved down here because this is where my boyfriend's from. Um, and yeah, we're just like chill mode. I like have this very spacious apartment, a backyard and a porch. I've been getting really into gardening. That's kind of like how I'm passing my time these days. But, these yeah. are not Manhattan statements at all. Yeah, what is going on? It's a different I know. life. I like that. You're like I mean, I spent like I spent over a decade in New York, so I feel like I I can't say that like I don't miss it, but also I definitely feel like I got to have some awesome times there. Yeah. Super cool. Sell it for for everyone looking to a place to, for a place to move, the land of Greg Abbott. <laughs> and, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't like, I can't speak to your ability to like have heat or consistent air conditioning, <laughs> you know, for the foreseeable future, given the whole like Texas having its own grid thing, which I was not aware of prior to moving here. Yes, um, that's but quite I, a thing. <laughs> yeah, I definitely I lived through the deep freeze. Luckily, we had power the whole time, which was very nice. great. But it was still extremely intense. <laughs> but yeah. but yeah. Okay. Well, I feel like there's a lot more that we could talk about in the future, and we'll hopefully have you on to discuss again. Um, yeah. No, just going, yeah. So really appreciate having you on here. Really enjoyed um, your insight into all of these issues, and we'll be following you and hopefully have you on again in the future. Yes, that would be awesome. I feel like sometimes I'm just like rambling about this stuff to myself in my columns. So it's nice to like have a conversation about it. Yeah, I'm usually like alone, like saying it to my dog and he just tilts his head and doesn't seem interested. So <laughs> this is all very good. Um, Natalie Meyer, thank you for joining the program and um, we will see you in the future. Awesome. Thanks. So Jonah... There are a couple other stories in sports that I want to touch on. Um, oh, yes, there are. A few from um, the NBA. But before that, um, you alluded in our conversation with Natalie Weiner about um, Carl Nassib of the Raiders, and he has become the first active NFL player um, to come out as gay while he's playing. And I feel partly like this is an enormous, enormous story. And I also feel like it's getting much less attention than I feel like it would have 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago. Is that because he's not a bigger name player? Is that because we've come far enough along that it's just not quite as consequential? It seems like a big deal. Like, it's 2021 and still, before this player, no active NFL player had ever said, yep, I'm gay. And now there is one. And I feel like, well, there I don't was know. um, what wasn't there? Who was the guy who played for the Rams? Uh, Michael Sam, drafted. but Michael Sam yeah. never made it. He was drafted, but he never actually made it. And then he had to leave after like a year. He never actually made it. Yeah, and there were some former players who have come out. Uh, you know, after I think of, um, right afterwards, Ryan O'Callaghan in particular. Yeah. Um, comes yeah. to mind. Um, he played for the Patriots and the Chiefs. Uh, you know, so look. It isn't just a moment for celebrating the wonderfulness of acceptance and tolerance. And, but the fact is there has been a sea change 
in American popular consciousness, in American politics. I think it's international. And, and the sociologist in me is fascinated with basically since 1990, if you look at public opinion polls about, you know, uh, LGBT, you know, people and same sex relationships, and there has just been an enormous, enormous shift. I think it's an interesting question about why there has been such a shift. But this is such a, a classic example of sports as a mirror on society, not a hammer in which to change it. You know, but a mirror on society. And it says something both that this guy could come out and that the response was, you know, largely positive, from, including from other players and, um, you know, people around the NFL in the most, you know, kind of like in the most cliched way, kind of macho game, right, historically, that you would think would be the least accepting. And the fact is, it is an example of how society has changed dramatically in its conception of these issues over the last 30 years. I'm not saying there's not discrimination or bigotry or inequality and the, you know, the data on that, particularly against some groups, obviously, you know, you look at rates of things like unemployment or violence or against people who are transgender, for example, and they're enormous, but this is a good example of the change that's happened. Uh, and, um, you know, I think it's a marker of that in a lot of ways. I'm going to be especially interested now that he's come out in whether other players, because at, at any other point in history, that would have been wielded against him as a weapon, Absolutely. certainly. And I'm wondering now, in, a, in an ironic sense, if if homophobic players will have to, will feel pressured to closet comments and actions because... It's not going to be, it's not going to get the same reaction if in week four next year you find out that an offensive lineman on the Broncos said or did something targeting this player who is gay. Like it's not going to yeah. be, you know, even even the NFL's audience is not going to be as down with that as they would have been twenty or thirty years ago, at least publicly. So it'll be interesting to see. You figure there will be backlash, but I wonder on the field if there will be any. Because you know the NFL is going to want to, you know, turn Nasib into their, you know, their boy, and so, protect him and celebrate him. Absolutely, and uh, I mean, who knows what the response is going to be like on the field? I will say, I think this could have happened at any point in the last five years. I mean, really, you know, you you can mm -hmm. see it kind of building. I, I could think not even that long ago, like didn't Rajon Rondo, who I you know I love as a basketball player and. As always, who, who knows who he is as a person, but he may be a great person, but uh, was suspended mm -hmm. for saying something homophobic to Bill Kennedy, the, the openly gay NBA yes. ref. Yes. And I don't remember when that happened, maybe in 2012 or 13. But yeah, but, uh, I, you get the sense that there has been a real shift, even just in the last few years. Mm -hmm. And it just wouldn't be acceptable in the same way. Now, um, maybe we're wrong and maybe we're overstating the degree of the change. But I do get the impression that this would not have happened if Carl Nassib thought it was going to end his career, right? Or be a serious, you know, be a Certainly. serious blow to his career. Certainly. I, I don't think uh, he would have done it, uh, you know. And you also wonder, you know, and who knows? I mean, was he out? It, was, it, was it well known inside the Raiders locker room? I assume it was, you know. But maybe not. I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I think... Um, 
anyone who would have a who would have a real issue with it, it's gonna have to deal with it, you know, because it's not, you know, mm-hmm. it's not gonna be a situation in which, you know, that's gonna be, uh, yeah. The NFL even is going to try and show. I mean, I thought it was noteworthy that um, Goodell came out immediately with the statement saying we support him, and but you know, they they yep. they don't want to get tagged yeah. with the homophobic label, you know, obviously. Yeah. Speaking of humans with issues, let's go to Ben Simmons. <laughs> oh, now is man. this is this a or is Roger Goodell the one with the issue? Or, you know... Roger Goodell absolutely has his issues. Yeah, he fucking um, has issues. Yeah. But Ben Simmons and his Philadelphia 76ers were upset in the second round of the playoffs by the Atlanta Hawks, who I, I can no longer remember who they beat in the first round. Um, yeah, but I know that they, it's all a blur. I know they bested the Sixers. Um, and Ben Simmons has come under a lot of heat um, in the whole seven-game series, Simmons, Simmons only attempted three shots total in the seven fourth quarters, including no attempts in games four, five, six, and seven. Um, there was the infamous play late in game seven when things were still close. Um, Simmons went in for a dunk. The only person near him was Trey Young, who's about a foot smaller. And Simmons, instead of dunking it, passed it off to um, Matisse Thybul. Um, who was fouled and missed a free throw. Joel Embiid said after the game that that was the moment when he realized um, things were not going to end well. Uh, when Doc Rivers was asked after the game whether Simmons can be the point guard of the future, he was very openly non-committal. Uh, Simmons himself is clearly resistant to the idea that he needs to do something to change. When the media was asking him about his performance after Game 7, he was turning to the team representative and asking them, um, how many assists he had, what Trey Young had shot. So Simmons seems to think, I'm fine. And I want to pose, maybe he is. Um, is the problem, he's not really a, a typical anything. You know, he's not a point guard. He can't shoot. He's not that kind of a creator. People compare him to Magic Johnson all the time. He's not that kind of player. He's a, a demon passing it in transition. He's a wonderful defensive player. He's 6'10", 6'11", cannot shoot with either hand, is apparently shooting with his weaker hand, because a number of people have suggested he should switch and he won't. Yep. What's the deal with Ben Simmons, Jonah Birch? Can the 76ers possibly move forward? They had the best record in the league. They were, you know, not far away a couple times from advancing to the conference finals. Is Ben Simmons an unsolvable problem, or is he getting scapegoated for a team that has no bench, a coach who has a history of postseason collapses um, is Ben Simmons taking heat where he doesn't deserve it. Let me can, let me say two things. First of all, can we quit it with the lazy Magic Johnson comparisons? I mean, just because they're both mm. tall and can handle the ball and pass, yep. they they are yep. just. Uh, first of all, Magic Johnson was not a great defensive player at all. Uh, he was nowhere. He was not in the universe of Ben Simmons, who is a defensive demon. And conversely, Magic Johnson had an offensive game that was in another stratosphere. Why People should actually go back and watch late career Magic Johnson. I don't mean mm-hmm, comeback mm-hmm. Magic Johnson, mm-hmm. but I mean any, at any game between 1987 and 1991 and just compare what he is doing to Ben Simmons because 
They're they're not in the same universe. I mean, Magic Johnson did incredible things as a scorer, you know, at at, at all levels of the court, right? I mean, you know, it wasn't he wasn't just a fast break point guard. Second of all, putting on my my neutrality, my objective hat, Joel Embiid deserves better than this, doesn't he? He deserves better. How can you not love Joel Embiid? And you, it's just the thought that. This great career, which could end at any point because the guy has serious leg issues, you know, and who knows? Well, meniscus. You know, uh, th- th- it's going to be wasted on a team that never should have fired Sam Hinkie and is paying the price for doing so ever since. That is my, that is actually what I think. This never would have happened if Sam Hinkie. So, uh, and, uh, just to say on Ben Simmons, Ben Simmons does add a lot, and that shouldn't be ignored. And the jokes on Twitter about him on the Shanghai Sharks next year, while funny, are are evil and wrong. Uh, you yeah. know, uh, it, it, it's obviously wrong. On the other hand, he has like I, whatever. It's just uh, th- there's nothing else to say. He has to shoot the ball sometimes. When do I, we I think reach he, the? When do we reach the point? Because he's like 24 now. When do we reach the age where it's just not realistic to ask a professional? Because a lot of guys can't shoot. He might be extreme. But there's a lot of players who can't shoot well. And there's a point at which you stop expecting it because they're not going to develop their skills past a certain point. It doesn't make any sense. So, okay, forget the the wrong hand thing. And yes, that's clearly an issue, right? Mm -hmm. He's obviously a righty. Supposedly his father taught him to shoot left-handed. Go back and watch some of the video of him in the summer league at the beginning of his career. There's video of him, you know, playing pickup games, essentially, where the guy clearly is shooting the ball from the outside and has some ability to do that, at least from 16 to 18 feet. Mm -hmm. He's terrified to shoot from within five feet now. Mm -hmm. He's regressed seriously, and part of that is probably on the Sixers. Uh, The the three-turn shooting... God, people are like, oh, imagine if the Sixers still had Markel Fultz. What, how terrible. No, two guys who can't shoot the ball. No, wrong. Markel Fultz can shoot free throws again. You know, Markel Fultz shot, mm-hmm. what, shot 88, 89% or something from the line before he got it, you know. I, I, he, so what has happened? And how much of this is on, on the Sixers as an organization? I, I, you got to ask that, right? It's a difficult situation. They've been trying to kind of win now. They've tried to slot him into a role where, you know, and, and, you know, where he doesn't have to shoot a ton. And clearly, I'm sure he's been getting all kinds of internal pressure and it probably hasn't helped. Who knows what those conversations are like. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's been some regression and that is, uh, you know, it's obviously mental. He needs, you know, their sports psychologists have to have to get involved. But a part of that has to be on the Sixers as an organization. No. Yeah, I've never understood. Um, I, I always feel that organizations blanket themselves against accountability by letting players be scapegoated. And all the reports this year were that the Sixers could have traded for James Harden and didn't do it because they didn't want to get rid of Ben Simmons. If that is true, that's an organizational fuck up. That's all that is to it. And for the Sixers for to for the Sixers to piss away on purpose half a decade for this process and highlight to their fans all that matters is that everything we do is about accumulating the biggest stars possible to try to win and when they were in a position to bring in Harden they didn't do it 
because they had to keep Ben Simmons. Or Tybalt. Maybe they didn't want to trade Tybalt, put him in the package. There was talk of Maxi that they wouldn't right. trade Maxi yeah. either. You can't, like, and this is a problem. Houston does this all the time, too, where the organization changes its agenda but doesn't update the public and lets everyone else take the fall. This, this front office of the 76ers is not the one that ran through the process. So they are content operating like a more traditional patient, let's try to balance now and the future. By doing that, they screwed themselves this year. Because if Harden was on the Sixers instead of the Nets, God knows how the East would have shaken up differently. They passed on it. They made the mistake of keeping a player who, I don't think the problem is that Simmons sucks. I think the problem is Embiid and Simmons don't fit together. And that's on the past regime that drafted, in addition to those two big men, also Nerlens Noel and also Jaleel Okafor, because they took the attitude of talent, 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 no matter what, all the way to one extreme. They drafted Dario Saric. Everyone they drafted was 6'11". And now they're left with two guys who don't fit together. It's, it's sad. And don't have any of the other pieces. Yes, but the organization is getting off scot-free while Ben Simmons is getting shit on, and that I don't like. I do obviously he can make improvements hopefully or he needs a change of scenery but I do think he is being scapegoated. Speaking of are you a deserved scapegoat? Let's talk about yeah. Paul George, Jonah. Oh, Paul George who depending on your feelings on him is either playoff P or playoffful P, playoff. it depends on your stance on the guy. Paul George um, who came up very big in their closing games against um Oh my goodness, who they just beat? Utah. Um, Paul George had enormous games against the Jazz. Yeah. Um, and in this series, missed a couple of free throws at the end of game two, <laughs> and then the Suns won on a last second alley oop. What do you want to say about Paul George, Jonah? I uh, let me can I ask you a question? Do sure. you, do you feel bad for Paul George at this point? No, not at all. I see the worm the worm has turned with me, and now I feel bad for Paul George. Paul George has actually had a really good playoffs. He's been really good the last few games. He was even good last game. With Kawhi out, he was essentially been carrying this team. And then at the end, now, you know, maybe he shouldn't have gotten those free throws anyway. You know, there's a, there's a whole discussion to be had about the reviews and the, the review right, process. Right, right, right. But I feel bad for the guy. Again, there's a mental health issue here at, at work, clearly, right? I mean, whatever the guy has done to be a great player again, and he's been a really good, not as good defensively as he was early in his career, but certainly a very good offensive player. He just, the pressure crushed him. It, that's all you can think happened at the end of that game. Right, wrong, you know, right or wrong? Is that, am I right about that? It's possible. I mean... He shoots a good enough percentage that it's you know it's not common that he would miss two. I don't think of him as you know the mentally strongest player I've ever seen, but I don't I don't know what's up with Paul George. I've never known what to make of Paul George. Um, he shot eighty seven percent from the line this year. Yeah, I, <laughs> he's a good foul shooter. Yeah, he's a good foul shooter. He's a little good, but he's a weird player. He's always been a weird player. Um, even at his best, he's a little bit weird. Why do you have no sympathy? A explain it to me. Because he talks too, he talks too much shit, and uh, stabbed his way out of Indiana, and then 
fled Oklahoma City. Here are my problems with Paul George, most of which have nothing to do with Paul George the player. Part of it is just my own personal, like, superstitious approach to life. I don't... I always believe that, like, the universe is listening, and if you say anything arrogant, like, they're going to get you. And so... Paul George is like relentlessly talking shit about how great he is and then fails to perform at that level and then does it again. And I'm willing to accept that like if you've earned $150 million in your profession, you probably don't give a shit about anyone else's standard of, of what success is. But I just feel every time I see Paul George promote himself, I feel like, you know, pride cometh before the fall and then the fall comes and he's got his money. He's still doing okay. I didn't like the whole nonsense with him and Doc Rivers' daughter and cheating on her with a with someone. And I, like my problems with Paul George have very little to do with actual, actual basketball. Defending um, the honor of the Rivers family, <laughs> as I am, as I am famous for doing. Um, yeah, I just I don't like him. Um, if I can say this, and I, I know I'm now delving into dangerous waters, but Paul George looks to me like someone that if my if my car broke down and I had to go walk to get gas and Paul George was there and offered to wait with my family while I went to get gas, I would find a reason to stay. I don't trust Paul George. Because he would hit on your, your hit on I your think, fiat. Like, I think he would kill them. I think he would do horrible things. Okay. I don't that trust is Paul George. ridiculous. <laughs> are, are we leaving that in the podcast? Because yes. Matthew Miranda, I have, you are for the most measured, reasonable friendly person maybe i've ever met that is an outlandish claim i don't like paul that, george i don't like all him right, at all clearly, I, clearly. I'm making it clear he's gonna be he's gonna be on the pod in a couple weeks i'll tell him right to his face <laughs> i don't like you paul george i miss danny granger um yeah so no not a fan of, of pg that was a tragedy danny yeah. granger it was speaking of tragedies jay williams who was a walking everyday tragedy Added to his hall of shame today, um, you may have seen, Jonah, Yeah, that your Boston Celtics have hired as their new head coach, and I hope I am pronouncing uh, Ime Udoka correctly. Yeah, Ime Udoka. Yeah. Ime Udoka, who was an assistant with Brooklyn. Um, Adrian Wojnarowski reports that the Celtics have are finalizing an agreement to hire Udoka as their new coach. Jay Williams, former um, educator at Duke, um, so I'm going to shit on private school educations here a little bit. And someone who is constantly just coming out with bizarre, absurd sports takes earned the ire of Kevin Durant a week ago for reporting something that Katie Spurs didn't say. Jay Williams tweeted, quote, the first head coach of color for the Celtics. Then there's a little fist, fist bump. And even more importantly, dot, dot, dot. He is one talented individual who has paid his dues. I'm going to let you get to this in a second, Jonah. But first of all, uh, the comp and writing professor in me is going to shit on Jay Williams' writing here. He says, even more importantly, he is one talented individual who has paid his dues. I would suggest to you that if this was the first coach of color the Boston Celtics had ever hired, that that would be a bigger deal than one single individual paying his dues. But I believe you have breaking news... Um, that may upset the Jay Williams leak even more. Hey. Jonah diving into the into the Jacobin microfiche to discover some shocking information about the Boston Celtics and head coaches of color. Yeah, yeah. So 
Dear Jay Williams, uh, and you know, there must be interns at ESPN who can do some re- this research for you. But the, the Boston Celtics had the first black head coach in the NBA. They were the first team to hire a second black head coach and the first team to hire a third black head coach. When was they the first had, coach hired? He How was uh, Bill Russell in 1969. So 69 was his first That's time. over half a century ago. Over half a century, okay. there have been the collectively black head coaches on, uh, on the Boston Celtics have won five NBA titles. Casey Jones, the great Casey Jones, yeah. Emil Carr, uh, a, not a title winner. The late but... great, not definitely not a title winner. <laughs> that was, was a hilarious year uh, yeah, uh, when yes. he was the coach. They were tanking for Duncan. Yep. Uh, later went into, uh, but Emil Carr, you know, very popular around Boston. Great player. Was a big PR guy. Yeah. He was he was not a great player. He's a great Celtic. But he was he was an enthusiastic player. There and, you go. Uh, there you go. Great steal and dunk in the 1984 finals mm. to seal. Uh, I believe it was uh, was a game four uh, against the against the Lakers. Look, I, you just I get it. You want to say Boston is racist, and fine, we had a whole discussion about this. But it actually is racist if you just literally, like, eliminate, just try and destroy the history of, uh, you know, black head coaches in basketball, right? Mm -hmm. Some of the best, some of the most famous. And it's kind of disgusting. Like, uh, just to be honest, these are legendary figures. Like, Bill Russell should not just be, I don't know, forgotten. Doc Rivers is still coaching. Doc Rivers is active. Like, what the hell? (laughs) It wasn't even that long ago. This is an ancient history. You know, it's really, what is this guy talking about? Oh my God. Yes. Anyway, I'm I'm going to try not to get too outraged, but a little research, just like a modicum of research (laughs) would really help. Now, to be fair to to Jay Williams, he deleted this uh, tweet because uh, someone was like, dear Jay Williams, wrong. (laughs) but maybe he should like again. He should fact check his tweets before he sends them out in the future. And basically everything so. he says. Yes. Yep. Jay Williams has had a number of these these faux pas. That's it for the sports stuff for the day. But before we get into our departure, Christmas in June has arrived in the Bronx for Jonah Birch, who received a package in the mail this week. I'm so excited. Curse of me. Now I want to. I want to explain. Like, why did I? Why did I even buy this gift? Why does Jonah Birch, academic extraordinaire, why does he even need this? I'll tell you why. Because Jonah's team had been knocked out of the playoffs, and I could just tell. You know, as a Nick fan, I'm used to early seasons ending, but I could just tell from some of the recent episodes that Jonah wasn't. He wasn't fully there. A, a piece of him had been taken out, and I wanted to find something that I thought. How can I rejuvenate my partner? Like, what can I get Jonah Birch to bring him back to life, back to reality, as we said back in the day? So, Jonah, I was in um, I was in a store here in Rochester, and I saw something on the shelf, and I realized what a perfect union of the past and the present. Now, am I gonna? Is this gonna insult me? Is it going to hurt my feelings? I don't think. I don't think so. I think you're a very tough person. I think you can. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna open fun. it right here. Here we go. Oh no! Oh, <laughs> this is a 
action figure of Paul Pierce. For those at home. On the Nets. Let me tell you why I, <laughs> I, uh, I love Paul this. Pierce Brooklyn Net action figure. Can I just... For Jonah Birch to hang up on his wall in Wisconsin. I'm not going to open this. This is going to be a collector's <laughs> item worth a, a lot of money. It's a collector's item. On the back, it says, collect them all. Paul Pierce on the Nets. Derek Rose on the Bulls. LeBron yep. James on the Heat. Anthony Davis on the Pelicans. Tim Duncan on the Spurs. Uh, and Steph Curry on the Warriors. Very 2014, uh, you know, NBA nostalgia. Let me just say, oh, look, only 100... No, never mind. The white one. There's one in the white jersey. Were we uh, ever so young as 2014? Apparently we were. You know, and for all of you, uh, you know, Trump supporters out there, I just want you to know this figurine was made in China. So, you know, what is that <laughs> about the links between the NBA and the Chinese Communist Party? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, shout I out to Daryl Morey. Yeah, shout out to Daryl Morey, yeah. I will say this only can make me happy, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> People want to pretend the Celtics-Nets heist of the century did not happen or didn't matter because the Nets signed Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving. Well, I am here to tell you, oh, it mattered. It mattered quite a bit. <laughs> it mattered. So when I look at this figurine of Paul Pierce dunking a basketball in a Nets jersey, I will only think of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. And all everything that they have given to uh, the city of Boston and the Celtics franchise. That's so the attitude you. I wanted to hear. That's thank what I wanted much. from John hey. Birch. Hey. See, it takes yeah. an attempted troll and he turns it into a positive, a positive icon. In the I'm Church of Birch. Guy. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, Very good. Well, okay, good. Enjoy your Paul Pierce. Hey. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, everybody. So. That is it for episode 23. Yeah. You can follow our guest, Natalie Weiner, on Twitter at Natalie Weiner, N-A-T-A-L-I-E-W-E-I-N-E-R. Our producer is the effervescent, luminescent Connor Gillies. Please remember to follow the Jacobin Sports Show on Twitter at Jacobin Sports. And if you're already following us, tell a friend. Don't be some first world uppity, you know, get someone else involved. Don't have all the joy for yourself. At Jacobin Sports, email any thoughts or questions or suggestions to jacobinsports at gmail.com. That is all for this week. We will see you in next week's exciting episode number 24. Take care, everybody. Bye.